Good evening. It's good to see you again this evening. I was just reminiscing with the brethren in the back room that it's been a whole year since I was in this pulpit. I couldn't believe that. I thought when I checked my records and pulled, wanted to pull to see what I had preached here the last time, I said, wow, I can't believe it's been that long already. They do say the older you get, the faster time moves. Is that right? I don't know. Maybe, maybe so, maybe not, but it doesn't seem to me like it's been a whole year. Well, the last time I was here, I began preaching a series that I've been preaching in Grand Rapids for a while, and that's a, a series from Hebrews chapter 11. And I'd like to take you tonight back to that chapter, Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 4. The scriptures tell us that the just shall live by faith, something that's both repeated in the Old Testament and in the New. And as we return to our study tonight, what I'm going to do briefly, because it's been so long, is I'll try to give a very quick review to try to get us back to where we are in the study, and and then we will continue with our study tonight. And before we do that, let's once again ask the Lord to to help us as we look into his word. Father, we ask you tonight that you would help us. We thank you for the privilege of having your word and the privilege of hearing it. We ask that as your hearers, that privilege would not be squandered, but that you'd help each of your people here tonight to lay hold of that privilege, to seize it, Father, and to take advantage of it. We pray that you'd help myself as I deliver it. Father, I have no ability to help your people understand or see the truth. I am but a mouthpiece for you. Help your people. Help them to see. Help them to understand your word. Help them to believe it and to put it into practice for your glory, for the glory of our Savior. In Jesus' name. Amen. So in brief review, the last time I came, we actually looked at kind of the context of of Hebrews chapter 11. We went back to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 to 39, to kind of find out what is the setting of chapter 11. Why does Paul here in chapter 11 start a dissertation on faith and then throughout the rest of the chapter give a several examples of that faith. Well, we looked at two, two main things related to that. First of all, we looked at the Hebrews' previous love. Where had they been? What had been their way of living? What had they believed? And we see that the writer here reminds them of how they were willing to suffer For the sake of the gospel. You see there in verses 32 to 34 of chapter 10, right right above chapter 11. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. Partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. And partly by becoming sharers with those who are so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. We we saw that 
that the Hebrew Christians had been made a public spectacle for the sake of the gospel. They'd suffered tribulations. They were likely beaten, mocked, scorned, thrown into jail, and suffered all kinds of humiliation for the sake of the gospel. We saw also that they shared the sufferings of other Christians. They weren't afraid to go visit those in jail and to associate with them, even at the risk of being mistreated themselves. We saw that they accepted joyfully the seizure of their own property. So as, as I quoted from David McWilliams in his commentary on Hebrews, he says, so gripped were the Hebrew Christians with the reality of the world to come that they were able to keep in perspective the material goods of the Lord's provision and to give them up knowing that they had a better possession and an abiding one. They had been faithful to Christ and the gospel in the face of all these tribulations. That's what the Hebrew Christians had been. But now as the writer addresses them in their present life, things were different. They were continuing to experience persecution, but now we're probably about 20 to 30 years later since many of these Hebrew Christians had been converted and Jesus had not come back. As a matter of fact, it would not surprise me at all if many of those being written to were were some of those who were even converted when Peter preached at Pentecost and shortly after. So the apostle, if it is indeed the apostle or the writer, whichever the case may be, addresses them. They've got a problem. They're saying, okay, you told us that Christ was coming. Where is he? We've been beaten. We've been mocked. We've been scorned for the last 20 or 30 years. Where's Christ? What happened? What's going on? And we see that as we go down and read, back up, excuse me, and read verses 26 to 31. Where there's a clear indication there that they're thinking of throwing their faith just completely off. And they're thinking of going back to their Judaism. And they're thinking is this, why not? At least we won't have to suffer the persecution from the Jews. They'll stop bothering us if we just get rid of this Christianity and throw it off. Christ hasn't come. Maybe it's not real. Maybe there's nothing to it. So the writer in verses 35 and following, exhorts them, wait a minute, don't do that. You don't understand. You don't understand the nature of the Christian life. Those who love God and love Christ live by faith. They live by faith until the day God takes them home or until the day Christ returns. Neither of which we know. For certain, but we must continue to live by faith. If they turn back, what's going to happen? Does that mean everything is just going to be okay and and great again? No. No, the writer's very clear in verses 37 to 39. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. Talking of the Savior. But my righteous one shall live by faith. 
And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. So the writer encourages them, continue on, persevere. Don't throw away your faith. Continue living for Christ. And now he comes to chapter 11, and he begins chapter 11 giving us a definition of faith. Okay, the just shall live by faith. What's that? What does that mean? The just shall live by faith. What is faith? Well, in verse 1, the writer tells us, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So he tells us, first of all here, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Assurance. What do you, when you hear that word assurance, what comes to your mind? Well, you say assurance. When somebody's assured of something, that means they're certain about it. They know it's true. They believe it's true. And indeed, that's what the writer here is telling the Hebrew Christians. Faith, biblical faith, is faith that believes what God has promised is true. It's certain. It knows. It doesn't give up. It doesn't stop believing. It just doesn't believe for a while and then quit. That's not biblical faith. He says biblical faith is a certainty in those things. And what, what has God promised? What has he said? Well, Christ said what? For God so loved the world that whoever believes will have eternal life. Do we believe that? or Do you or do you not? Christ said he would return again. And that he would, in that returning, do two things. Well, more than two things, really. But well, two things, two major things. He would judge the wicked. And he would vindicate his people by taking them home to be with him and creating a new heaven and a new earth for them to live on. Do you believe that? He's saying faith does. Faith is sure. Biblical faith is certain that's what's going to happen. And it's not only certain that it's going to happen, but its hope is in that, in those promises that God has made. The songwriter was right in the familiar song I know that you're familiar with when he said what? In Christ alone, my hope is found. What was he saying? He is my light, my strength, my song. The songwriter was saying it's in Christ. I believe what God has said about his son. I'm certain about it. And in that is my hope. That is where my hope rests. And the writer here is saying, that is a vital part of our faith. But that's not all. You notice there also, it says, not only is faith the assurance of things hoped for, but it's the conviction 
of things not seen. The word conviction used here in the NESB, which I'm using, and also in the ESV, is an interesting word. It's a word that in the King James, the New King James, is translated evidence. John Calvin here prefers the word demonstration. What is the writer trying to tell us here? What is he saying? Faith is the conviction of things not seen. Well, when you hear that word conviction, again, what do you think of? Well, in the original, this this word, the original language, comes from a word that's defined as a verb form of the word convict, and was used to speak of person convicted of a crime based on evidence. The same word is used in James 2.9 when James speaks of being convicted by the law. Now we often use the term, when we use the term conviction, what do we mean? Well, usually what we mean is it's what somebody really believes, Right? They have a conviction about something. We real have a conviction. If somebody believes that or has a conviction about, let's, make it, let's see, I'll make it simple. If you, if you were to come around my house and my wife would tell you, you would often see me wearing a baseball shirt or cap from a certain baseball team on the other side of the state of Michigan. Okay. It wouldn't take you very long to say, you know what, I think Pastor Matt has a conviction about what the best baseball team, what his favorite baseball team is. How do I know? Well, look at the hat he's wearing and the shirt he's got on. Well, there's a similarity here. What is, what is the writer trying to tell us about faith? How do I know this person has faith or that person has faith? How do we know? Is it just an intellectual assent to a bunch of facts about God and his son and things he's promised? Or is there more to it than that? The writer says, no, there's more to it than that. Faith is a conviction that demonstrates itself. It evidences itself. How do I know a man has faith? What did James say back there in James 2? Do you remember? Let's turn back there a minute. It's a good, instead of me saying it from memory, let's turn back and look at James chapter 2. James chapter 2, verses 14 and following. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Someone well may say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that, with, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac by, 
his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. What is James telling us here? James is not telling us we're saved by works. That's not what James is saying. James is saying when he uses the word justified here, not talking about justification and that we've been declared just in God's sight. What he's saying is you've demonstrated the evidence of your faith. You are really genuine. You're the real thing. How do I know by what you do? He says, that's how I know. Abraham was justified by his works. Does that mean he was, he earned something from God? No. It means his works demonstrated he had faith. It proved his faith. And that's what the writer here in Hebrews 11 is telling us. When he talks about the conviction of things not seen. Faith is the conviction of things not seen. It demonstrates itself. It shows itself. In a sense, it proves itself. That's what the writer here is telling us. So that's what he means when he talks about the nature of faith. He talks about those two things. He talks about the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Now he goes on in verse 2 to say, For by it men of old gained approval. Now here again is the writer telling us, okay, that, that they earned something from God by their faith? Is that what he's saying here? No. That's not at all what he's saying here. What he's saying it here is as a result of their faith in God, God was pleased with them. They didn't earn that. No, they didn't earn anything from God. That's not what he's saying. But the men, through their faith, were pleasing to God. They gained approval from him in days of old. So first of all, that's kind of, I'll call that previous benefits, let's say. What were the previous benefits? The the men of old gained approval. But then notice, it's interesting, when we get to verse 3, what the writer chooses to do. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Here he right away gives us an example. And in the words of one commentator, a summary of what he's been trying to say in the first two verses, what he's been saying in the first two verses. 
creation, God creating the world. Can you prove that? Can I prove that? Intrinsically, no, I can't. How do we believe that God created the world? By faith. And that he created it out of nothing. That he spoke it into being. That is by faith. We believe that by faith. The writer says, this is what I'm talking about. This is what I'm trying to say. What God has said, we are assured of. We believe. And we believe what? Things that aren't seen. We believe in a God who's created all things. Can we see him? No. Did we see him create all things? No. Do we believe it? Yes. Why? Because he said it. How do I know we believe it? Hmm. Because of the way we live. Our lives are affected by it. We go back to that word conviction. When a man has conviction, it affects how he lives. If he has a conviction about something in particular, for instance, if he had a conviction that sugar was, was going to kill him, what do you think would happen? Would he eat sugar anymore? No. And I'm not here to pro or con sugar. That's not the point. No, he wouldn't. That's his conviction, and as a result, what? He changes the way he lives based on his conviction. And so does biblical faith. What it believes, it lives. We don't believe this and live something completely opposite. The writer says, no, that's, that's not biblical faith. And you can't say you're a Christian, he's telling the Hebrew, Hebrews here, and yet go back on what you've said. If you really love Christ and you really love God, then you need to continue living accordingly. And what I'd like to do is spend the rest of our time tonight looking at the, example, the first of many examples that the writer is going to give of biblical faith. So let me go back, because I haven't been real clear in giving my points, and I just noticed that in my notes. And as I'm getting ready, I said, wait a minute, I don't think I gave you all the points that I gave. So let me try to clarify a little bit so you can follow me better. Under the necessity of faith, I just gave you the previous benefits from verse 2 and, the, and what I've called the pertinent application of that by believing in creation from verse 3. Now I'm going to go to some previous examples, and this will lead into a series of several messages that I've already preached, this being the first of many. Verse 4, as I was asking the men tonight, I said, if I were to ask you to give me a list of five or six people from the Bible, from the Old Testament in particular, who you thought were men of faith, who would be the top of your list? Mm, top of mind would probably be Abraham, maybe, Moses, uh, maybe David. Um, we could probably get to a, a few more pretty quickly after that. But would Abel be at the top, towards the top of your list? Probably not mine. I might eventually get to him. 
but he wouldn't. And yet the writer, and God has inspired the writer here to start with Abel. Verse 4, you'll notice it says, By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. What I want to do tonight, briefly, is I want to take you back to the book of Genesis in just a moment to look at Abel and to look and see what God has told us about Abel in the book of Genesis. And the reason I do that is because when the writer wrote this to the Hebrew Christians, they were very familiar with who Abel was when he said Abel. They knew exactly what he was talk- who he was talking about, and they knew exactly what the Bible had to say about Abel. So as we hear the writer talk about Abel, let's go back to Genesis chapter 4 and bring those facts about Abel back to the forefronts of our mind again so we can think about, okay, what is the writer wanting to tell us by using Abel as an example of faith? What does he want us to learn from that? Genesis chapter 4, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to break this down very simply tonight into three parts. I'm going to look at, under his story, the story of Abel, we're going to look at his birth and his life and his death. Very very basic, very simple, but some very important things that we need to learn there. Verse 1, Genesis chapter 4. Now the man had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I've gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of flocks. But Cain was a tiller of the ground. Now we see here a couple of things in these two verses. Number one, we see that Cain was the firstborn of Adam and Eve. But he wasn't just their firstborn. We know that. That's a a familiar fact to us. But two other things. Number one, he was the firstborn human child in history. This was the first child ever to be born. Now just think about that a minute. You have Adam and Eve here living by themselves after the fall. No children have been born to this point, and God gives them a son. What do you think their reaction was to that? I already see the smile, so I know <clears throat> that you're thinking just what I'm, I'm... I think they were excited about it. I think they were encouraged about it. God's given us a son. This is great. And what added to that was what? What probably added to that was it's very possible that Eve here may have been thinking back to Genesis 3.15, the last chapter, remember? When God promised that she would bear a son who would 
trample under his foot the head of the serpent? She may have even been thinking at this point, wow, is God fulfilling his promise already? Is that what I have here, a son? And now God's going to fulfill his promise. So here we have Cain. So you can imagine all the excitement, maybe celebration, I don't know, about the firstborn, Cain, and maybe he's the fulfillment of that promise. And then verse 2, it tells, and again she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. You notice in verse 1, when Cain was born, Eve said, I've gotten a man-child. We don't see much said about Abel when he was born. Do we? Now, I don't think that means that they didn't, weren't thankful for Abel. I don't think that means that at all. But not quite all the fanfare, probably. Not quite, all the, not quite as much excitement, though I'm sure they were thankful for Abel. So we have Cain and we have Abel. And probably Cain, as I said, because he was the firstborn and the firstborn in human history, much ado about him. Now, verses 3 through 7 give us some interesting information about their lives. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well... Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. We're told that in the course of time, the brothers came and they worshipped God. And they worshipped him bringing sacrifices at the appointed time. Now, I think it's very reasonable if we use a little, what I will call, um, biblical speculation, and I think it. It stays within the realm of what we have here. I think it's reasonable to think that Adam probably taught his sons about worshiping God, about how to worship God, what God required. And I know we know from the passage here that God himself spoke with Cain in particular about his offering. But it's it's most likely, it's very likely, at least when they were young, for sure, that Adam taught them how to do this. They probably even went with Adam to offer the sacrifices to God that he required. So now what they were probably doing is following the example of their father. But you notice that God makes an interesting comment about the two offerings that the men had, not, that the men had brought. One, he says, he did not regard One, he says, he did. 
Scripture tells us that God accepted Abel's offering, but he rejected Cain's. Now, one of the things that often when you hear this passage preached is you hear them say, oh, that's because Abel brought the firstlings. He brought the sacrifice, a lamb, and Cain did not. He brought a sacrifice of of his fruits. But you notice that there's nothing here in this passage, at least, that says that. It just tells us that God did not have regard for Cain's offering. And he did for Abel's. As a matter of fact, God goes on to tell us. In verse 6, he asked Cain when he has no regard, why are you angry? What's the problem? And why is your countenance fallen? And if you do not, and if you do well, won't your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and it's desire for you is going to master you. So when, when God had rejected his offering, Cain became angry and sullen. He was angry, upset, and offended at God. God told him if he repented, and was no longer sullen, God would accept his offering. If he didn't obey, his anger would overcome him. Sadly, Cain was not willing to listen to God. He hardened his heart. He wanted to worship God how he wanted to worship and not how God wanted him to. Which is a reminder to us here to pause and take note that we don't have the right to worship God the way we want. We must worship God the way he wants. Whatever he's required. And he's very particular about that. Very, very particular. So, Cain does not listen to God. Verse 8 then begins with a very interesting statement. Cain told Abel, his brother. Now, why would God put that in here? And what did he tell him? Cain told Abel, his brother, or said to Abel, his brother, what did he say to him? Well, I think it's reasonable to think that in some way, at least, he told Abel what was happening. How God had had refused his sacrifice. Now, exactly how he conferred that, we're not told, other than he told it to him. We don't know. But we do know the Bible tells us that he did tell Cain, did tell Abel. Cain did tell Abel. And I think the Lord has put it here 
to help us understand more of what was Cain's attitude. Remember the interaction we've got have going on here. Cain is the older, Abel the younger. Being that I'm the oldest in my family, I know what we can have a tendency to do as older brothers. And I know a few of you would know the same. Older brothers have a tendency to want to lord it over their younger siblings. That's a very common thing. And I'd be willing to, to say to some degree that's exactly what Cain was doing to Abel here. Cain wasn't just mad at God. Cable was trying to, he was telling his brother what God had told him and said to him. And it would not surprise me at this point if he's here trying to pressure Abel in some way to be like him. And instead of doing what God wants him to do, to be like Cain. Remember now, Cain is, is angry at God. He's mad for being humiliated by his offering not being accepted. And so what's he want to do? Just like any, anybody when they're humiliated, anybody when, they, when someone else is accepted and they're not, what is, what is the response? What happens? What do people want to do immediately? If they refuse to acknowledge they need to do the right thing, what's the other direction they go in? If they don't repent, what do they do? They try to justify what they do. Justify their own position. They try to vindicate it. What do you suppose Cain was trying to do with Abel? Pressure his younger brother? Possibly. Lead his younger brother down an evil path? Very possibly. But the scriptures here tell us there was some interaction between Cain and Abel related to this. That Cain was doing something. Probably pressuring his brother to no longer follow God. So in brief, that's kind of what the scriptures give us about the life of Abel. Now, in this last part of verse 8, what do we get about his death? Well, the sad words are recorded, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Wow. A lot of things run through my mind when I read that. What do you think Adam and Eve thought about this? Can you imagine your oldest son killing your second oldest son? How would that make you feel as a parent? That would be horrible. And Cain has gotten so hardened throughout this time to the place that he's now taken the life of his younger brother. Wow. He's become very hardened. Why would Cain do such a thing? Why would he kill his younger brother? Well, again, the scriptures give us a commentary on that. Turn with me back to the New Testament, if you would, to 1 John. 
1 John chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. 1 John 3, 11 and 12. And here the Apostle John, as he's talking about love and hate in the world and being hated by the world, And how those who follow God are his people and those who do not are not. Verse 11, for this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Which, of course, is the core of what John says in this whole letter, how God's people need to love one another, and that's how we know we are truly his people. Verse 12, not as Cain who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil, and his brothers were righteous. Why did Cain kill his older brother? He was envious. His brother was righteous. And he was being accepted by God. And he was not. Or he was jealous. But one thing we know, it was because Abel was righteous. And he refused to give in to the pressure that his brother was probably putting on him not to follow God. And not to do what was pleasing to God. And it is a reminder to us at this point what? Don't be surprised when the world hates us. No surprises when the world hates us and it has no use for you because you're a Christian and you love God and you love Christ. Don't be surprised. Cain hated his brother. Why? Because he loved God. Because he was a righteous man and did what pleased God. And he couldn't stand that. And while persecution doesn't always come that way, it doesn't always come in death, yet Paul reminded Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, what? That everyone who lives a godly life is going to suffer persecution. And, of course, Paul wasn't telling us that means we're going to be persecuted constantly, but that we would experience, as Christians, as his people, persecution. No, sometimes our enemies, even God has said in Proverbs 16, 7, even our enemies, the godly man's enemies, God makes to live at peace with him at times. But we will experience persecution. Abel experienced that persecution and hatred. And I don't think Abel's killing his brother was just, boom, like that. One day he just walked out and killed his brother out of nowhere. I think that was probably after a a lot of persecution, pressure, attempting to get Abel to stop being a righteous man and failing to do so. He went out.
His, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. And why is the writer, you notice the writer actually gives us the reason here, why, the main reason why Abel's sacrifice was better. Do you see what he says there? How did Abel offer his sacrifice? By faith. Did Cain? Did Cain offer his sacrifice by faith? Did he come in faith? No. No, it wasn't just the outward sacrifice. Yes, he may have brought the outwardly the sacrifice, but that's not what that's what, what was pleasing to God. It wasn't just the outward sacrifice. Even if Cain had offered the exact same sacrifice, let's say they had both taken the exact same sacrifice to God, would God have accepted Cain's sacrifice? No. It wouldn't have been any different. He could have brought his whole household and it wouldn't have been any different. Why? Because he didn't come in faith. Solomon tells us in Proverbs 21, 27, that the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to God. Why is that? Why is the sacrifice of the wicked an abomination to God? You remember what David said in Psalm 51 about sacrifices? In verses 16 to 19, David said that God did not delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices. What did he delight in? A broken and contrite heart. That's what Cain didn't have. Cain could have gone through exactly what Abel did. Step by step, doing exactly the same things. And it wouldn't have changed anything. Why? He didn't come in faith. He did not have a broken and a contrite heart. He didn't have a faith, a faith that caused him to what? To believe in God. And it was evidenced by what? By his behavior. He never had a heart that loved God, did he? Based on what he did. God delights in a broken and a contrite heart. Now, David didn't say, you notice David didn't say in Psalm 51 that God has no use for offerings and sacrifices. That's not what he said. God has use for offer, had use for those offerings and sacrifices, but only when they were brought with a broken and contrite heart. We can go through all the outward ceremonies, brethren. We can come to church twice a week, show up to prayer meeting on Wednesday, and do all those good things, which are good in and of themselves, and which we should do. But what if we have no heart for it? Does it please God? No. Why? It's not done in faith. 
with a broken and a contrite heart. It's good, yes, to come to church. It's good to go through all these things. It's good to pray. It's good to read our Bibles and to do all those things. We need to do them. But brethren, if they're not done with a broken and a contrite heart, they will do us absolutely no good. Absolutely none. We have to ask God to give us a broken and a contrite heart. Otherwise, we become like Cain. And we've come hardened against the truth. And we become in danger of following example, his example. Abel did come that way. He came with a humble and a contrite heart. How do I know that? How do I know that he came that way? God accepted his sacrifice. As a matter of fact, in verse 4, it tells us what? God testifying about his gifts. What? Do you notice the actual, the alternate reading there is God's receiving his gifts. God received, as we saw in Genesis 4, his gifts. He was pleased with Abel because Abel brought his gifts with a broken and a contrite heart. He came in faith, believing God. And he demonstrated that. And we're told, remember, as we saw there in 1 John 3, that Cain killed his brother because his brother was a righteous man. What does that tell us about Abel? He was a man who loved God. He wasn't a man that just went through the outward motions. But he had a heart after God. And he loved God. And then lastly, his personal sacrifice. Abel was aware of his brother's contempt for him. We know that Cain told Abel what God had said and undoubtedly had communicated to his brother his dislike for Abel's following God. And I'm sure as a younger brother, and again, I didn't experience this since I was the oldest in my family, so I don't know what it means to be a younger brother. I have to rely on the testimony of others, but it's hard when you look up to an older sibling and they go astray. The pressure, I understand, from older siblings can be quite significant. Wanting to follow your older sibling. Wanting to be like them, as it were. And Abel felt some of that pressure. No, undoubtedly, he thought, should I continue To provoke my brother, maybe I can get peace between he and my brother just by forgetting all this, okay, and just going off with him. Then he and I wouldn't have all this contention between us. No. Even with all that, Abel went against his brother to remain faithful to God. Abel had not only lived, but Abel died, a man following God. He became the first martyr to die for the faith. The first man to stand up, as it were, for the gospel and to give his life for the gospel. And again, you can imagine, imagine Adam and Eve. And go back again. Here they thought 
Possibly Cain might be the answer to God's promise in Genesis 3.15. And he kills his brother. And then, not only does he kill his brother, but then they lose the one of the two who loved God and followed him. And they lost him. God took him. So you can imagine where they are at this point and what's going through their minds. What's happening here? What's going on? What is God doing? And not understanding at all what's about to happen. Now they have no idea at this point that God's going to bless them with another son who will eventually be the first in the line, apart from Adam, of Christ, through whom Christ would come one day, to whom the Messiah would come. But at this point, they're, strugg- they're struggling too, trying to figure out what is going on. But we're told here at the very end of this verse, though Abel is dead, he still speaks. What does the writer mean by that? What is the application that he's trying to tell us through Abel here as we come towards the end tonight of our message? What? does he want the Hebrew Christians to see here? Abel was a righteous man. He lived, and he lived by faith till the end of his days. But one of the things I think that he's pointing out to the Hebrew Christians here is that until until we die and go home to be with the Lord or until he returns, there is a cost in following God. We follow him by faith, but that faith comes with a cost. And that cost at times can be pretty high. Living a life by faith can be very costly. Jesus said what in in Luke 9, 23 to 26? You remember what the Savior told us there in Luke 9, 23 to 26, about living for him and following him? I'll read it here. He said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and the holy angels." Jesus made it very clear it's going to be a costly thing to follow him. It was costly to Abel. It cost him his life. And it is a costly thing to follow Christ. Abel was our example. And the writer here is trying to encourage his readers, don't get tired, don't get weary. This is 
what the Christian life is. This is it, folks. It's costly. It's going to cost you something to be a Christian. And if it doesn't cost you anything, something is very, very wrong. It costs to be one of Christ's. And sometimes it costs dearly. Sometimes it costs us friends. Sometimes it costs us family. Sometimes it costs us children, a spouse, material goods, health. can cost us any of those things to follow Christ. You remember what David said when he was praying to God about being persecuted by his enemies in Psalm 55, verses 14 and following? And he comes to say, Lord, it wouldn't be so bad if it was just somebody from the outside. But do you know who it is? It's the guy who used to go to church with me. He's stabbing me in the back now. He's the one that's given me all the grief and, and problems. He's talking evilly, slandering me to other people. Do you, that's why this is so hard. David said, yeah, this is really, I'm having a hard time, Lord. This is hard because the guy who was my friend and used to go with me to the house of God is now my enemy and stabbing me in the back and speaking evil of me. It's costly to follow Christ. And Abel was an example of that, a very big example, a very good example of that. The second thing as we close is just to note and a reminder of, again, to us that God in his infinite wisdom and grace and love is still sovereign in salvation, is he not? Here was Cain, the firstborn in human history, who would have been the most likely to be chosen to be the one that would be the head of the line of the Messiah. Wouldn't it have been Cain? Wouldn't you think that would be the one? No. Well, then how about Abel, his righteous brother? Surely, surely he's going to be the one. No. God's ways are not our ways, are they? Has anyone ever experienced that? If I asked for hands, I think the whole auditorium, all the hands would go up. We have, haven't we? God's ways are not our ways. No, God's ways are his own ways. And along with this, we are reminded of the sovereignty of God and salvation. He didn't choose the firstborn to save, did he? No, he chose the second. And the first he did not. And that's not the first time we, the last time, excuse me, we hear about that in scripture, is it? We hear about that again, do we not? With Isaac and, and Esau and Jacob? Who did he choose? I chose Jacob. I hated Esau, I chose Jacob. He hated Cain, he chose Abel. 
God is sovereign in salvation. He chooses whom he will. He does not choose whom he does not want to. He is sovereign. And sometimes that's, you say, well, that's easy. We can read that in our theology books and in our confession and all that. But how about when the rubber gets the, meets the road and it's family and friends that we continue to try to preach the gospel to, speak the gospel to, and there's nothing. And what do we say? Lord, you're sovereign in salvation. Choose whom you will. We leave it in your hands. And isn't that not probably what Adam and Eve had to do here? What were they going to do? In essence, they lost two sons, really, did they not? One to death. And as we know from the punishment that Cain received, God drove him out. Drove him into the wilderness because of his evil. And they lost two sons. But God is sovereign in salvation. He saves whom he will. And he hardens whom he will. May Abel's example be one to encourage us, brethren, You say, well, I'm not anxious to get killed like Abel. No, I am not either. But I do know this, brethren. What we pay, the cost we pay here doesn't measure up to the gains we're going to get one day. And let me just close by saying this. If there's anyone here tonight whose faith is not in Christ... You may be saying, well, boy, I'm not a Christian. I don't want to have to pay that kind of cost. Let me just say this. You will one day pay a cost. The cost will be much heavier than anything that we as God's people pay in this life. It'll be a cost that lasts for eternity. and It'll be a horrible and an awful cost. It'll result in a punishment that's beyond anything you could really put your mind around. It will be horrific. A punishment you'll never escape. A fire, we're told, and a torment that will last forever. That's not worth it. I would much rather follow my Savior and pay the cost that he requires of me in this life than to suffer for eternity. If you don't put your faith in Christ, you will suffer for eternity. You will pay a cost, a cost far greater than we as God's people will pay in this life. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you tonight for your word and for giving it to us. And we ask that you'd help us as your people. Father, strengthen our hands. Help us not to become weary and tired of the persecution, the things that we 
experience in this life the cost of being a Christian. Help us, we ask, to persevere and endure. Help us to see Abel as an example of persevering in faith and how even under undoubtedly the displeasure of his brother, he was willing to persevere to the end. Give us grace, we ask and pray, to persevere to the end that we might indeed be able to partake of those things that God has laid up and Christ has laid up for those who love him. In Jesus' name, amen.